Well, I want to talk today with you about the subject of prioritizing. As we pick up the story of, of Abram and Sarai, um, the theme this morning is the theme of, of setting priorities. And I know that that theme is going to become very, very real to everybody in the room uh, in about a day when suddenly we're confronted with a basket mounded with goodies and we have to decide, will it be the Reese's Cup, the Snickers bar, or the Twizzlers I pick first? And we'll probably eat all of them. Uh, that's probably the way we'll solve the problem. Uh, prioritizing is an important thing in life and at a much higher level than uh, what we do with our Halloween candy, of course. Some of you will be familiar with the famous illustration of this particular idea that was supplied by uh, business guru Stephen Covey in his book, uh, first things first. And I particularly uh, love this, this story. Covey is attending a, uh, a seminar, and the seminar uh, lecturer is teaching on the value of time and how it is you really make good use of your time. And in this particular encounter, what he does is he, he's up there in front of the congregation in, in the seminar, and he reaches underneath this table, and he pulls out this big gallon uh, jar, wide mouth gallon jar, a little bit like this, but more jar-like, than this and he sets the big jar on top of the table and alongside of it is a platter and the platter has got all of these um, rocks on the platter and he uh, holds up one of the rocks and he looks around at the group and he says how many of these rocks do you reckon I can fit into that uh, jar and uh, people raise their hands and there are all kinds of guesses and he begins to proceed to put the rocks into the jar until it pretty much comes up right to the very top of the jar. And then he looks out at everybody and says, is the jar full? Is the jar full? And people eyeball it and it looks pretty full. And almost everybody in the group says, yes, it's full. And he says, okay. And then he reaches underneath the table again and he pulls out a bucket and, and it, the bucket is full of gravel. And he proceeds to, to dump a bunch of the gravel into the jar, and a lot of gravel goes into the jar, and it sits down between all the spaces between the rocks, and he turns around, and he says to the group, is the jar full now? And now there's sort of mixed opinions on the subject, and he smiles, and he reaches underneath again, and this time he pulls out a bucket, and it's got sand in it. He, pulls a, he pours a whole bunch of sand, and it filters down into the spaces between all of the gravel in the, in the place, and... Um, and then he says, is the jar full? And, and Covey says, now we're on to him, <laughs> right? And everybody shouts out, no. And he smiles and he says, good. And he not, reaches underneath. He pulls out this time a bucket and he, and he pours about a quart of water into the container. A, a, a quart of water still fits in the container. And then he steps back and he sits down and he says, what's the point? So what's the point of this exercise? And one of the bright students fires a hand up and says, the point of it is that our lives are like that jar. And, and the lecturer says, that's good. Say more about that. And the, the person responding says, um, and, be, and, and our, jar, our lives are like that. They're, they're, they're full of a lot of stuff. And the lecturer goes, yeah, keep going. And the guy says, um, and, and if you try really hard, you can always jam a lot more in. <laughs> and the lecturer says, that's kind of the way we live, but that is not the point. <laughs> that is actually not the point. The point, says the lecturer, reaching in and pulling out one of the rocks, 
is that if you don't put the, the big rocks in first, you won't get any of them in. You start with the gravel and the sand and the water. You won't fit in the big rocks at all. Think about that for yourself for a minute. What are the big rocks for you? Over here? Foundations. The big rocks are the foundations. They're the core values. They're the, the firm beliefs. They're the important relationships. They're the great goals of your life, the things that you're clearest about in your best moments. Those are the big rocks. The question I have for you this morning is, are you prioritizing them? Are they first in your life? Genuinely, practically, daily first. Prioritizing, if I could give you a little simple definition here, is deciding which amongst a variety of potential values in your life, good things in your life, is, is so important that you choose to put that particular thing first. That's, that's what prioritizing is. It involves assessing carefully what's important to me and then deliberately putting that big rock uh, in first. Uh, Jesus once uh, talked about this. In fact, one of his most famous teaching, part of the Sermon on the Mount, was he said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Seek, seek the things that the dependable foundation stones of the kingdom of God, seek that first, and everything else that's needed will be fitted in, is what Jesus basically says. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these other things will be added unto you. So the question I want to ask secondarily then is, do you prioritize the kingdom of God in your life? Or maybe I should ask, how are you prioritizing? Uh, in what practical ways do you prioritize the kingdom of God in your life? Well, our study today, as we pick up the story of Abraham and Sarai, is really about this. Uh, it is about a moment of choice. Uh, we find the story in Genesis chapter 13. You might enjoy opening up in your Bible to that if you choose. But in this particular account, we, we, we meet a moment in the life of Abraham and his nephew Lot, his, his younger um, relative Lot, that I think has a lot to teach us. Let me pick up the story. The Bible reads, so Abram, he's still called Abram at this point, it's not been renamed Abraham. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, which by the way is the southern part of the land of Canaan, what will eventually be Israel, with his wife and everything he had. And the scripture goes on to say, Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. Now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, and I love this part, but the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. Now we get this. Have you ever had the in-laws come to your house? <laughs> and you know that after a while, you know, that's a lot of people in one house, and it might be good for the relationship, actually, if you went your separate ways after a while. Well, this is kind of what we're hearing about in this story. Um, so Abram said to Lot, 
let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herders and mine. They're kind of they're arguing, I guess, over the land and where the, the flocks are going to be gra- grazing and who's got the better land to do that. And, um, and he says, for we are close relatives, and let's stay that way is what he's saying. <laughs> We'd like to remain in good relationship with each other. So let's, let's part company, says Abram. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. And if you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Now, pay attention to what happens next because what happens next is enormously revealing about these two guys. Um, The particular decisions that each of them are making in this particular moment are revealing of the lens through which they are looking at life. They tell us a lot about, in a sense, what they're prioritizing, Um, what it is they value most, how each of them defines success and significance, in a sense, and the choice that each of them, Abram and Lot, make in this particular moment is in complete alignment with the way they look at success. So we're told, Lot looked around And he saw that the whole plain of the Jordan towards Zoar, towards the east, was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like Eden, like the land of Egypt, the Bible says, the the fertile Nile River Delta. So Lot chose for himself the plain of the Jordan, and he set out toward the east. Abram, on the other hand, lived in the land of Canaan while Lot lived among the cities of the plain, and he pitched his tents near Sodom. Now, I'm putting myself in this position and this moment of choice myself, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to figure out, you know, sort of what I would do. And I want to invite you to put yourself in that place. Uh, so I'm standing there, and, and I look over to the west, and there's this rocky terrain. It goes up. It's a mountain. It's mountain after mountain. And I've got all these herds. Uh, and I look over toward the east, and there's this fertile valley. And it's well watered. The Jordan is running through it. And, and I look out even further still, and I can see the lights of the city of Sodom. And this was one of the happening cities of the ancient world. I mean, this is where the glamorous people lived. This, this had a nightlife. This was a throbbing, exciting kind of place. And, and I imagine myself faced with this choice. I'm going east. Go east, young man, is what I'm thinking to myself. Uh, because part of me is thinking, this is where I'm going to find the kind of, of life that I want. You know, I left Ur, the land of Ur, with Abram and the rest of my relatives uh, months and months, maybe a couple of years ago. And, you know, it's not been an easy life. It's been a life on the road. And I bet a bunch of my friends back there are thinking to themselves, you're a fool for going. What are you doing leaving Ur? This is a great place to live. And now I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to send them a holiday card. And I'm going to tell them all about life now. I've got this home in the Tony suburbs of Sodom. And they're going to think, I wasn't so stupid for leaving. I made a really good decision to go off uh, towards the land uh, that God was going to show me. So I I may be stretching it a little bit here, but I think Lot's lens here was a 
a very understandable and, and common, perhaps even familiar lens. His lens for making this decision had to do with the priority that Lot put on his sort of obvious self-interest, his, his, his comfort, um, possibly the admiration of other people. In other words, Lot is prioritizing, or he's looking at life through the lens of what, what um, many would simply call material wealth. Um, he's just sort of seeing things in those terms. Now, it's really critical to stress that that if you read the whole Bible closely, you cannot walk away thinking that material wealth in itself is a bad thing. On the contrary, there's a lot of the teaching of the Bible that suggests that, that prosperity or wealth or, or, or uh, uh, well-being, um, being able to take care of your family, being able to, be, to have a home and to eat well and to be clothed, and all these are things that God values too. God does not love homelessness. God does not love poverty. Uh, God, on the contrary, is constantly calling the nation of Israel and then the church through the New Testament to be addressing the needs of those who lack, which is what poverty means. It's a lack. He's trying to build resourceful relationships so that we're lifted up out of poverty. In fact, um, so much of the biblical worldview, uh, with its emphasis on personal responsibility and on hard work and on honesty and on industry, and all of this has led to more flourishing than could ever have happened on this planet without the, the Christian or, and the Judeo-Christian values. In fact, almost everywhere the gospel has gone and really been taken seriously, it has lifted the material quality of life for people. And that is still God's desire. So, so, so material wealth, at one level, is really, really good, okay, where God is concerned. And I've known many, many people who've had material wealth, who've used it according to the priorities of God, and it's, it's a magnificent thing to watch. So wealth is good until it's bad. Well, when does it become bad? Well, when I was a, a, a kid, I, I was in uh, summer camp, and uh, this was a camp that was dirt poor. It had the worst facilities you've ever seen. I mean, it had a, it looked, um, the surface of the moon was what a, the, the, the baseball field looked like. It was just hideous. The, the, there, were, there were holes in the screens, there were mosquitoes everywhere. But this camp didn't invest in that because it put all of its money into, into outings. And I'll never forget these amazing camping trips we would go on that summer. And um, my mom recently confessed to me, by the way, that when she, um, uh, dropped me off at the camp, she cried all the way back to New York State, feeling that she had exercised child abuse by living me, leaving me in these conditions. But it was the greatest camping experience. And one of the trips uh, we took was up on a mountain called Katahdin, and there's a knife's edge. There's a really narrow ridge that goes out with sheer drops on both sides. And I'm, I'm, a, I'm just, at this point, like 13 years old, and I have a huge backpack that actually towers over my head, and my legs aren't quite strong enough to manage it. My back is tired, and I'm going across the knife's edge. And I'm just so worried that the pack itself is going to take me over. That's, that's the risk with, with material wealth. Um, we need really strong legs to manage it. We need a real backbone to manage it. And, and if we don't have that, spiritually speaking, then we're at risk of falling 
into the, the ditch of, of self-interest or selfishness on the one side, okay, that's one of the risks, or the, or, or the, the ditch or the precipice of um, self-sufficiency on the other side. You know, John Wesley, one of the great reformers in the, uh, in the, uh, out of the English uh, tradition, uh, the founder of Methodism, used to say that, that we are meant to earn as much as we can, save as much as we can, invest as much as we can, and give as much as we can. But, but when wealth becomes overwhelmingly the focus of our life, it can, it can, its weight can, can throw us down into, into selfishness on the one side or the ditch of self-sufficiency. I don't need God. Either it's all about me, or I don't really care about anybody else. I don't need God, I don't need other people. So that's, that's the main um, danger, I think. So to be wealthy and wise, you need the guidance of God. You need strong spiritual legs. You need to think a lot about your priorities. Um, and, and that's really the focus of our conversation today. So you don't get this sense as you, as you listen to... Um, to uh, Lot make his choice here, that, that he spends a lot of time and energy sort of consulting God on what his choice should be. Uh, he makes the decision pretty impulsively if you just read the scriptures at face value here. And to complicate things, Lot chooses to build his home next to Sodom, um, which is, as I said, a very powerful influence uh, in his day. It was known to be a pretty godless place um, it, on, it's across a wide range of, of, of issues. And, uh, and Lot is effectively choosing to root his life or, or build his, his family's life in a valley whose priorities are self-centeredness and self-sufficiency. He, he's, this fertile valley has got huge drop-offs on, on both sides. And he's choosing to do this. Now, because Lot is a devout man, you know, keep in mind, he's going off on this great big journey of faith. He's been, along with Abram, following God uh, all this time. He probably thinks to himself, I can handle this. I can maintain my spiritual health. <laughs> this place is not going to drag me down. I'm going to be a positive influence here. And it's fascinating to note that um, in chapter 13, we're told that the Lot family uh, lives near Sodom. In chapter 14, they're now living in Sodom, and by chapter 19, Lot is one of the most influential, influential men of Sodom. You see the progression? He's being taken over. And, and ultimately, when he finally comes to his senses, and he does later, and realizes that it's having this tremendously bad influence on him and his family, and he resolves to escape, the family can't get out. It, it turns out that, that his wife has gotten really hooked. Usually it's the other way around. The guy gets hooked. And the wife is the one that kind of drags him to his senses. In this case, the wife is hooked. And as they're escaping uh, Sodom to avoid the, the judgment that's coming, uh, she turns back. And she becomes literally a pillar in her community. <laughs> but not the salt of the earth that, that Jesus had in mind when he called his disciples to do it. So that's, the, that's what happens to to, to the Lot family. Now, let's be real about this. It, it is pretty hard these days to find, to build your house, to, to root your life anywhere that's not next to Sodom. Um, it really is. It's hard today to be uh, 
I suppose you moved somewhere in the outback, um, but everywhere you go, you're going to be exposed to these dangerous influences. Now they come to us uh, digitally in all kinds of ways. And, and, it, and we have to find ways of maintaining our clarity and our priority in the midst of the incredible storm of, of stuff coming our way. We, we do. And I know some people who are actually called to, to, to live in Sodom, to actually called to go to these difficult places in order to be a radiant influence in those spots. I think that's part of our calling, to be a radiant influence, a difference maker, salt of the earth in the best sense of that, light of the world in the best sense of that, in these places. I have known people, committed Christians, who moved to Green Bay, Wisconsin and avoided becoming Packers fans. <laughs> it can be done. It can be done. So, so please don't hear me as suggesting that, that we're meant to sort of disappear from the world. But because we are in this world, we have to be very attentive to the, to the strength of our legs and our backbone, to, our, to a clear sense of our priorities, or we will be uh, sucked into this in a very um, dangerous uh, way that we never really meant to have happen to us. So I think about this for myself sometimes. You know, does, does having a lifestyle... Uh, as Amy and I do, uh, that requires both of us working uh, so many hours, um, so hard and so long. Um, is that lifestyle worth the, the, the pressure it puts on our ability to be together or to really be present to our children? Um, how do we prioritize that? Um, is, it, is it wise to care more about the games our kids play and where they go to college, as almost everybody who's got young children in this room can understand that pressure? Is it wise to care so much about that and to, the, to the extent where sometimes we care more about that than whether they know and love God and where they'll spend eternity? It's a very dangerous priority problem in American church life. Uh, today? Is being a leading citizen of Sodom or Elmhurst or Hinsdale or Darien or Chicago or wherever you may choose, is being the leading citizen, everybody knows you, anywhere near as important really at the end as being a leading member of the church of Jesus Christ that goes on forever? Um, how do we prioritize these things? I struggle to prioritize these things. I will, I will tell you, I've made bad choices at times. I've had to make lots of course corrections along the way. I, I, I have regrets about some of the ways that I've prioritized my life and handled things at, at moments. I have overestimated my ability to stay out of the ditch of self-centeredness and self-sufficiency, and I've plunged into those ditches on more than a few occasions. But this I'm pretty sure of. I'm growing... A greater clarity about this as the years go by. Buying that even larger flat screen TV that can become my obsession or that additional uh, piece of jewelry or going on, on multiple, multiple lavish vacations uh, uh, each year or investing so much in that second home or, or being determined to leave that large an inheritance to an already well-off family isn't necessarily bad. It isn't. But it, it can keep me from doing what's really good. You know, the good that I really want the most when I'm clear-headed. Um, so how about you? 
you know, what's tying up resources? What's taking up space in, 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 in the jar of your life um, that is preventing the big rocks from getting the priority that they need? That, that's, that's what I'm inviting you to think about. What if I told you that you could be involved in a movement that would help hundreds and maybe thousands of people develop a Christian moral vision for life, a personal relationship with Christ that would secure their eternity, and you could really be a part of making that outcome happen. What if I said to you that you could help to extend extend new branches of the Church of Jesus Christ into communities where the Christian witness is dying away and maybe over time be part of a nationwide movement that would lead to the rebirth and the resurgence of the church in a way that would make an election like we're having today inconceivable because the culture will have been changed. Uh, there will be a level of health in the culture that, that isn't present today because the church will be so vital. What if you could make sure that hundreds of under-resourced kids living along uh, in a pocket of suburbanized poverty near us uh, experienced mentoring and, and tutoring and their parents received help and job training and the like that would result in a level of flourishing in their life that would keep them out of trouble and, and bring a smile to the face of God. What if... If, if you knew, you could be part of something in, in which a, a, a community in Africa where, where kids are literally right now going hungry and without education could be lifted out of that condition and experiencing the flourishing that God had in mind for them when he, when he brought them into being. What if you could personally help bring about those kinds of results? Would that feel to you like success? and significance, would that be something that would matter to you? Raise your hand if, if being part of any one of those things might matter to you. Well, I've got great news for you because take root gives you a way to practically prioritize those rocks. <laughs> We've given you this amazing portfolio of opportunities to have that kind of impact, um, which is why I'm so excited about being part of it myself. Um, now, I want to take us back to the story of Abraham and Sarah and, and wind it up here because what we see here is in contrast to Lot, Abraham clearly prioritizes the kingdom of God in this narrative. Uh, now, we know that because the very first thing that Abraham does when he enters into the land of Canaan is not look around and try and figure out where's the best home building site. The first thing that Abram does, according to the story, is he builds an altar to God. It's, it's the first rock for him. I'm going to honor God. I'm going to look to God. And upon his return trip, as he comes back up from Egypt, he stops again at that same place. It's in a place called Bethel. And he prays and he calls upon God for guidance. He called on the name of the Lord, the scripture says. In effect, Abraham is saying, God, you are my first priority. Show me what I'm supposed to do, how I'm supposed to order my life in this place, what you want from me in this era ahead. So, so the first thing he does is he prioritizes God, the king and his kingdom. 
Secondly, Abraham prioritizes others. That's the second rock for him. Uh, he, he says to Lot, you take the land that you want. I want you to have the first shot at picking the place that will be best for you. Now, this is crazy radical stuff because Abram is the elder person here. And in that society, a traditional society, elders don't give the choice to the younger ones. The younger ones just take what's left over. But Abram says, I'm giving you the priority. Lot, you, you pick first. Uh, in effect, Abraham's saying, I am third. That's the banner over Abram's life. God's first, others are second, I am third. And he takes joy in that place. And I think that sounds crazy to a lot of us. We think to ourselves, oh, we become doormats. Oh, we never have our needs met. Oh, that would be a terrible thing. But the amazing thing here is that because Abraham prioritized God and others, God prioritized Abraham. That's good news, to be prioritized by God. That's a really good place to be <laughs> because God has endless capacities. And we see here that, that Abram goes on to be taken very well care of. In fact, he enjoys a, a, a flourishing life at a level that Lot never actually experiences. Now, if we go back a few chapters in the story before this one, we go from chapter 13 way back to chapter 4, we get the same principle underlined again in one of the other really famous stories of the Bible. How many of you have ever heard of Cain and Abel? Raise your hand. Right, famous brothers. Well, there's this story, as you may recall, in which each of them is seeking to bring an offering to God. They're trying to express how much God means in their life. And, and in this story, as you may recall, Abel um, brings God... His, a lamb. He brings him an offering, a fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. He gives his best and his first to God. Now, that is risky business because when you give the first, who knows that there's going to be a second? I mean, that might have been lamb chops. That's all the lamb chops this year. And I'm sacrificing that to God. But Abel prioritizes God. And, and he gives him the first lamb. Cain, on the other hand, he's a farmer. He, he chooses to make grain his gift. He waits till the harvest comes in. And by the way, both of them farmed and had animals. They both had the capacity to, to give the first and the best. Cain, he waits to see how much of the harvest comes in. He takes what's left over after he's made sure there's enough for himself, and he gives that to God. That's why in the story God is pleased with Abel's gift and not so much with Cain's. It's because of the way they were prioritizing him. For years, I, I, I was a Cain uh, in my approach to honoring God. I was what I like to call now a December disciple when it came to financial giving. Um, I would give a little bit along the way, you know, I'd toss into the plate along the way, but my really big contribution to the work of God in the life of the church uh, was in December because I wanted to see if there was enough for me during the year. And I had to get through Christmas and all those things. And so come December 31st, baby, that's when I was in. You know, I would try and do my very best then. That, that was, was my approach. Uh, I've changed that pattern over the years. It's been, it was difficult to change, but I have changed it. It has brought a strange freedom. We made this arrangement, this fantastic little push pay app that we often talk about around here. We set up an auto deposit, uh, auto withdrawal rather, 
right out of the first, uh, first part of every single check now uh, of my paycheck goes directly uh, toward, toward the church. And then when Amy and I get here on the weekends, we can make offerings in addition, in addition to that. And I'll tell you something, it has felt like freedom. It has felt so much better than that anxious thing that, that we do at the end of the year, to trust God. And, you know, we've not been going hungry. Uh, it, has, it has worked out just, just fine for us. As some of you are thinking to yourself, you know, that's fine for you, Dan. You've got a regular paycheck. I'm in sales. I have no clue in January or April what my year is going to look like. Or, I, you know, most of what I get, it's a, I'm a business owner, and I, it's not until the end of the year that I really know. Or, or, or it's, that's the time I get the big bonus. I mean, that's when I have to make my decisions then. And I get that. I mean, if you were to start giving sacrificially all along the way, I mean, that would be like giving first fruits. That would be like giving the first and the best. There's actually a theological word, word for that kind of wacky, risky behavior. It's called faith. Non-religious people call it a mortgage. It's amazing how people who actually don't know what's happening, they do think they have enough faith to pay the mortgage or to take one out because it's one of the big rocks. They prioritize that. So God says, honor the Lord with your wealth. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops, and then your barns will be filled uh, to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. As we move to a close today, let me just ask you a couple of personal questions to land this thing, if I can, and then we'll go on our way. First question is, who or what do I put first in my decisions? What for me is, is, is the sort of driving concern in my life? Is it my material comfort? Is it my uh, security? Is it my, um, how the neighbors and my friends think about me as they look at my lifestyle? Um, what is it that for me gets the priority? Because whatever I put first in my life is my God. That's the definition of a God. It's the thing that gets first place. I love what Tim Keller, pastor in New York City, says about this. He says, money is not an idol. It just tells you where your idols are. Money's not the issue. It's just where is your success, significance, and satisfaction, really? Because uh, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also, said Jesus. You'll be able to find your heart by looking where, at where you place your treasure. And you can reallocate your heart. You can redirect your heart by where you put your treasure uh, is what the scriptures teach us. Second question, what would it look like for God, his kingdom, to get the first and the best of me? What would that start to look like if I began to lean more in that direction? Uh, I remember hearing somebody once say, I was in their home, uh, you know, honey, that, that couch is looking so ratty. I mean, the springs are coming out, it's all tattered. I think we should give that to the church. And I've been in all kinds of churches that are filled with those members. I have. I've pastored some of them. When I came here for the first time, 
I was uh, 38 years old. I was just visiting, checking out this place. I wasn't the pastor. And I walked around, and I was stunned by Christ Church of Oakbrook. I mean, there was nothing old couch about this place. I mean, it was clear to me that people here had prioritized the church. They had great facilities, great communications, great technology, great commitment to the needs of the world. And I remembered asking the, the pastor, Dr. DeCryder, about this. I said, How did, this is an amazing place. Tell me about that. And he said, we have always made excellence our priority because God is so excellent. And we think that leaders will be attracted to excellence. And we think that that will actually mobilize more resources than if we just skimped on stuff. And he was right. Tens of millions of dollars have gone out over the years in mission at a level that most churches never even touch because of the way they prioritized excellence uh, to serve an excellent God. Uh, so if we want the very best for our world, why not invest our best in the world's best hope for its future? And the church of Jesus Christ globally is God's plan. It's his plan for renewing the globe uh, through the power of Jesus. And, uh, and you and I are part of that. Final question is, do I want to be known as a storer of blessing or as a steward of blessing? Do I want to be a storer or a steward? Uh, that's a really critical question. God was, was clear with Abraham about what he wanted him to be, about why he was going to bless him as he did. I will bless you, and you will be a blessing so that all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. I will bless you in order that you be a blessing. That's your mission, Abram. That's, that's your job, Sarai, is to be a a force of blessing in the world. Abraham got that completely. It, 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 when it came time to choose, you know, who would get the first choice, his instant instinct was, how do I bless Lot? How do I bless him and give him opportunities? The sign of Abraham's growing maturity over the years was that more and more he lived his life thinking for the sake of others, for the sake of others, for the sake of others, instead of being self-centered or self-sufficient. Lot did not do that. And as you know, um, he saw this life, Lot saw the life about, in terms of seeking and, and storing and securing for himself, or as somebody has quipped, get all you can, can all you can, then sit on your can. <laughs> Which I think is a really good description of what most of the underlying message of advertising is. Think about that. Get all you can, can all you can, conserve it, and then sit on your can. The good life is about finally being able to sit on your can with all this stuff around you. That's not the God's vision of the good life. No, no, God's vision of the good life is that your life not be a reservoir but a river, not, not a container but a conduit. God's vision is that you know the all-surpassing joy of knowing that your time on this earth, your life, your talents, your capacities, your relationships were just throughput for his amazing grace to bring blessing upon the face of this earth. Are you going to be a storer or a steward of blessings? In the end, whatever we prioritize ahead of God, we will lose. Think about that. Whatever we prioritize ahead of God, we will lose. It all goes away. 
Faith, hope, and love remain. Those are the only things that abide. Lot lost it all. He lost, he lost everything that he because he prioritized it ahead of God. But whatever we give to God, the first and the best of, we never lose. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he can never lose, said Jim Elliott, one of the great Christian missionaries. And, and Abraham and Sarah found that out. They gave their best, they gave their first, and God gave them a legacy in eternity across time and history. We're here because of them, here in this room today. And, and, and every wise person I know growing in the faith wants that kind of influence and legacy too, to be that kind of a force of blessing 